All right. Glory to God. Amen. You know, my wife was talking about the upcoming meeting and that, you know, in between meetings, you could go to the beach or take a nap. And I thought, well, 20 years ago, the beach sounds nice, but now a nap sounds better. Amen. <laughs> that would be my choice. Glory to God. Well, if you got your Bibles, let's open to Mark, the 14th chapter. <clears throat> and I'm going to be reading out of the Amplified Version for this text. And we're going to look at 23 and 24. Mark 14, 23, 24. Jesus also took a cup of the juice of grapes. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, this is my blood which ratifies the new covenant. The blood which is being poured out on account of many. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We ask your Holy Spirit to open our eyes today and make your word come alive in us and help us to better understand our covenant relationship with you. Thank you for helping us and for transforming us into the image of your son in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, this morning I want to expand on the subject of covenant that Pastor David talked about in his recent message last week about the Syrophoenician woman who had the uh, daughter that was demon-possessed. And in his sermon, he stressed the importance of understanding our covenant relationship with God. For me, there is no other Bible topic that strengthens my faith more than the study of the blood covenant. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning. Throughout the Bible, the blood weaves itself like a scarlet thread throughout all of God's interactions with man. Now, those outside the Christian faith might view this gory truth as a requirement of some twisted being who has an insatiable desire for bloodletting. But the truth of the matter is there are precise legal reasons for the shedding of blood in the eyes of a just and righteous God. In fact, every step in God's plan of redemption from after the fall of man until Jesus Christ was seated at the right hand of the Father is simply a series of legal steps. The plan of redemption can't be understood unless you read it from a legal point of view. And when you understand this, you gain fresh insight into this magnificent plan. The plan that our God enacted long before man ever came on the scene. And you'll see this book, the Bible, the one we carry around or maybe leave on our coffee table. It's actually the most remarkable legal document humanity has in its possession. So why blood? What makes blood so critical to the redemption story? Very simply, blood carries life-sustaining elements to all parts of the body, in humans and in animals. Therefore, it represents the very essence of life, and it's sacred to God. Shedding of blood represents the shedding of life, or in a word, death. Death makes us think of sin because death is the penalty for sin. In the eyes of a just God, when blood is shed from an acceptable substitute, the substitute's death atones for or covers the sinner, who then is allowed to live. In our text, Jesus told his disciples that his blood is being poured out to ratify the new covenant. This implies there is an old covenant that is being superseded. So what is a covenant? 
In the Bible, the word covenant means a binding agreement between two parties. As Pastor David mentioned last Sunday, marriage is an example of covenant. In Malachi 2, 13-14, this is in the New King James Version, the prophet said, And this is another thing you do. You cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because He no longer respects your offerings or receives them gladly from your hands. Yet you ask, for what reason? Because the Lord has been a witness between you and the wife of your youth. You have acted treacherously against her, though she was your marriage partner and your wife by covenant. A blood covenant is a binding agreement between two parties sealed by the shedding of blood and often ratified by walking between pieces of flesh. Such an agreement is the most enduring, most solemn, and most sacred of all contracts. When you enter into blood covenant with someone, you promise to give them your life, your loyalty, and your protection forever, till death do you part. With dire consequences if broken by either party. Covenant partners are saying, what's mine is yours, and what's yours is mine. Now, it's interesting to note blood covenants are not just found exclusively in the Bible. One writer on this topic said there are historic traces of this right from time immemorial in every quarter of the globe. In my mind, this is an important fact. Because if God is going to enter into covenant with man through a ritual that is unique only to God, the enemy of our soul could rightfully contest the legality of such an agreement. 2 Corinthians 4.4 in the New American Standard Bible refers to Satan as the god of this world. When God created man and placed him on the earth, he gave dominion and legal rights over all creation. Now, this is what I'm going to tell you right now. Helped me tremendously years ago in my Christian walk. When you understand this, it helps you understand a lot of what's going on in the world today. Adam transferred the authority that God gave to him, to Satan, God's enemy, by yielding to Satan's word over God's word. The fall of man was a lawful act. Adam had a legal right, not a moral right, but a legal right to transfer his God-given authority and dominion into the hands of another. And the God of justice had no right to arbitrarily annul it. So God must now deal with man within the confines of the current world system ruled by Satan. And in so doing, he must be just to himself just to man, and just to the devil. But none of this took God by surprise. Ephesians 1, 3-4 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before Him. Revelation 13.8 says all who dwell on the earth will worship Him, meaning, meaning Jesus, whose names have not been written in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. So God had this plan in place long before He even created us. Amen. Charles Spurgeon, the renowned 19th century British minister, 
had some interesting comments about God's foreordained plan for redeeming man through the blood covenant. Spurgeon had very heavy Calvinistic leanings, so when I read his works, I follow Kenneth Hagin's advice, eat the meat and spit out the bones. Spurgeon said, before God had spoken existence out of nothing, he had entered solemn counsel with himself, with his son, and with his spirit, and had in that counsel decreed, determined, and purposed the salvation of his people. Spurgeon went on to imagine what that council meeting between the members of the Godhead might have sounded like. And this is what he imagined the Father saying. I, the Most High Jehovah, do hereby give to my only begotten and well-beloved Son a people, countless beyond the number of the stars, who shall be by him washed from sin, preserved and kept and led, and by him at last presented before my throne without spot or wrinkle. I covenant by oath and swear by myself, because I can swear by no greater, that these whom I now give to Christ shall be forever the object of my eternal love. I like that. Then will I forgive through the merit of the blood. To these will I give a perfect righteousness. These will I adopt and make my sons and daughters, and these shall reign with me through Christ eternally. And then Spurgeon imagined what the Holy Spirit would declare. I hereby declare that all whom the Father gives to the Son, I will in due time quicken or make alive. I will show them their need of redemption. I will cut off from them all groundless hope and destroy their refuge of lies. I will bring them to the blood. I will give them faith whereby this blood shall be applied to them. And I will work in them every grace. I will keep their faith alive. I will cleanse them and drive out all depravity from them. And they shall be presented at last spotless and faultless. You'll recognize that as the work of the Holy Spirit even today. Amen? Finally, Spurgeon imagined what the Son's declaration would be in this Holy Council meeting of the Godhead. My Father, on my part, I covenant that in the fullness of time I will become man. I will take upon myself the form and nature of the fallen race. I will live in their world and I will keep the law perfectly. In due time, I will bear the sins of all my people. You shall exact their debts on me. The chastisement of their peace I will endure. And by my stripes, they shall be healed. My Father, I covenant and promise that I will be obedient unto death, even death on the cross. I will suffer all they ought to have suffered. All the vials of your wrath shall be emptied and spent upon my head. I will then rise again and ascend into heaven and intercede for them at your right hand. I will make myself responsible for every one of them, that not one of these whom you have given to me shall ever be lost. This, in a nutshell, is the mystery of the gospel. Paul spoke of in 1 Corinthians 2, 7-8. Paul said, We speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the ages for our glory, which none of the rulers of this age knew. And that means Satan and his cohorts. For had they known this mystery, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. The mystery that God kept hidden until the fullness of time is that God has entered into a blood covenant with himself for mankind through Jesus of Nazareth, the Son of God, Messiah of the Jews, and Savior of the Gentiles. And all who will may enter into that covenant with him. 
Hallelujah. That's good news. How did this mystery unfold? We said because Satan is the God of this world, God Almighty could could not just work out His plan of redemption for man willy-nilly. He had to work it out within the confines of the world system. In other words, he had to do it on such an equitable, equitable basis that it would perfectly satisfy the claims of justice, meet the needs of man, and defeat Satan on legal grounds. To do this, he had to find a man he could enter covenant with. He found his man in Abraham. I've often wondered if Abraham was his first choice, <clears throat> or if he tried entering covenant with other men before Abraham. And all of them failed to pass the test. I remember hearing Catherine Kuhlman, the great healing evangelist during the early part of the charismatic revival in the 60s and 70s. She said she asked God why he chose her to be used so mightily. God's response was he had asked two other men before her, but neither of them wanted to pay the price. That's pretty humbling. Well, the scriptures are silent about whether Abraham was God's first choice or not. But there's no question that he was the man God could work with. Let's look at Genesis 17, verses 1 through 7, again in the New King James Version. It says, When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am Almighty God, walk before me and be blameless. And I will make my covenant between me and you, and will multiply you exceedingly. Then Abram fell on his face. And God talked with him, saying, As for me, behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be a father of many nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be called Abraham. For I have made you a father of many nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make nations of you, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you, and your descendants after you in their generations." for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and your descendants after you. I want you to notice Abraham's posture before God. He fell on his face, a position of humility and submission. Two chapters earlier in Genesis 15, God told him that his descendants would be as numerous as the stars. And we're told that Abram believed God and God accounted to him as righteousness. Then in Genesis 15, 9 through 10, God said to Abram, Bring me a three-year-old heifer, a three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. Then he brought all these to him and cut them in two down the middle and placed each piece opposite the other. Now, that seems sort of gruesome, but that's description of covenant practice. According to the ancient Eastern manner of making a covenant, both the contracting parties passed through the divided pieces of the slain animals. This symbolically attested that they pledged their very lives to the fulfillment of the covenant they were entering. That seems, sends our Western mind sort of in a tilt, because we're not familiar with that, but this was common practice in that part of the world. And now in Genesis 17, 10 through 11, God explains how Abraham was to enter into this blood covenant with him. He said in verse 10, This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male child among you shall be circumcised. Timing is everything. When you, when you see what I'm about to read, 
Every male child among you shall be circumcised, and you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins. And it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. I think I can safely say as a man that if God had tried to enter covenant with other men before Abraham, this is where they would have parted ways. Because now it's going to cost them something. I used to wonder why God chose that portion of man's anatomy to cut covenant with Abraham. One writer said that the blood had to be spilled at the very source of paternity as a pledge that not only Abraham, but all those who came after him in the line of natural descent would honor the covenant. And this is a valid argument. In fact, when a Jewish child is circumcised, it's commonly said that he is caused to enter the covenant of Abraham. And to see how seriously God took the honoring of that covenant among Abraham's descendants, we need only look at Exodus 4, 24 through 26. In a very dramatic way, God had called Moses to lead the children of Israel out of Egypt. But Moses, who was a child of the Abrahamic covenant, because his parents were from the tribe of Levi, he had neglected to circumcise his own firstborn and was therefore unfaithful to the Abrahamic covenant. So on his way to Egypt, Moses is confronted by the Lord. In verse 24, it says, And it came to pass on the way at the encampment that the Lord met him and sought to kill him. Moses, the one he just chose to deliver his people from Egypt. Then Zipporah, Moses' wife, took a sharp stone and cut off the foreskin of her son and cast it at Moses' feet and said, Surely you are a husband of blood to me. So he, the Lord, let him go. Then Zipporah said, again, you are a husband of blood because of the circumcision. If you and I were God, we might have said, hey, you know, let's cut Moses some slack here. He's willing to go to Egypt and deliver the children of Israel. So why don't we just let this infraction slide this time? We see a lot about the character of God here and the seriousness with which he approaches covenant. He was willing to let Moses die and find another who would honor his covenant with Abraham and deliver his people from Egypt through them. We also get some insight into the disposition of Zipporah. I wondered if he called her Zippo for short. I think they named a cigarette lighter after her. She was the Gentile wife of Moses. And she comes across as someone who is not too pleased with her husband and the adventure he is taking her on. Many believe this is probably when Moses sent her and their sons back to Midian with her father. Probably a good move on Moses' part. Let's go back to Abraham. I believe another reason God required Abraham to cut off his foreskin as he entered into blood covenant with him is it was a visual reminder to Abraham and Sarah every time they had intimate relations that Abraham was in covenant with God and that God would provide them a son. It strengthened their faith, just like looking at the stars encouraged their faith in God's promise of having countless descendants. And so 25 years after God had promised Abraham a son, 25 years, Genesis 21, 1 through 4 tells us, And the Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did for Sarah as he had spoken. For Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age, at the set time of which God had spoken to him. 
And Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore to him, Isaac. And then Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. And for the next 20 years, Abraham nurtured and enjoyed his son Isaac. Like so many other fathers from that Eastern culture, he prized his only son's life more than his own. He would rather surrender any of his possessions before losing his only son. His earthly joy and earthly hope centered on Isaac, the son of his old age. But then we come to Genesis 22.2. God says to Abraham, Take now your son, your son, only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, which I shall tell you. Most commentators talk about this verse as God testing Abraham's fidelity to the blood covenant they had made together, as if God wants evidence that it was no empty ceremony on Abraham's part. I believe there's more going on here. Remember, the whole purpose of God entering blood covenant with man was so that he could have a legal pathway to carry out his plan of redemption. Remember also that we said that the understanding between covenant partners is what's mine is yours and what's yours is mine. God's plan from before the foundation of the world was to send his son as the spotless lamb who would take away the sins of the world. In order for God to give his only son, he has to prove that his covenant partner, Abraham, is willing to give his son, Isaac. I want you to see something about the precision of God's plan here. He told Abraham to go to the land of Moriah to sacrifice Isaac. Why have him travel 50 miles away, which is a three-day journey on foot, to perform this sacrifice? Well, here's why. This is where the future city of Jerusalem would be located and where God's son would be sacrificed on Calvary nearly 2,000 years later. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. That just amazes me. Genesis 22.3 demonstrates to me why Abraham is called the father of those who are of faith. Verse 3 says, So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him, and Isaac his son. And he split the wood for the burnt offering, and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. I don't know about you, but outside of Jesus, Abraham takes second place as my hero in the Bible. God needed, needed that blood covenant partner to enact his plan of redemption in a legal fashion. And Abraham just trusted God so implicitly. He obviously had a good night's sleep because he got up the next morning, was ready to go, and, and away he went. Well, God never intended Abraham to sacrifice Isaac, but he had to demonstrate that Abraham, his covenant partner, was willing. Once that was established, God could legally sacrifice his son, to redeem lost humanity. And here's the good part. There was not a thing in the world Satan could say to contest it. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Let's fast forward 2,000 years from Abraham. Jesus is born to the virgin named Mary. Eight days after his birth, he is circumcised, just like Isaac, 
bringing his humanity into the blood covenant, which was between God and the seed of God's friend, Abraham. For 33 years, Jesus lived a spotless life in order to be the once and for all complete sacrifice for the sins of the world. The hour that then draw near that the true covenant of blood between God and man should be consummated finally in its perfection. And now we go back to our text, sermon text in Mark 14, 23. We're actually going to start with 22 on this. Jesus gathered his disciples together to participate in the covenant meal of bread and wine. In verse 22, he said, and while, and it says, and while they were eating, Jesus took a loaf of bread, praised God and gave thanks and asked him to bless it to their use. Then he broke it and gave it to them and said, take, eat, this is my body. He also took a cup of the juice of grapes. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them and they all drank of it. And he said to them, this is my blood, which ratifies the new covenant, the blood which is being poured out on account of many. One writer describes what happened next. After the meal, Jesus went out and left a memorial to the covenant. He planted a tree and he poured out blood on it. But it wasn't the blood of bulls and goats. It was his own blood. It wasn't a little nick in his wrist. It was all his blood poured out at the foot of the cross. The blood-stained tree that stands forever is a memorial to the covenant. The Lamb of God slain from the foundation of the world cut covenant for all mankind. So what does this mean for humanity? E.W. Kenyon writes that it means the claims of justice have been satisfied. It means the sinner has a legal right to accept Jesus Christ as his personal Savior. He has a legal right to eternal life. He has a legal right to victory over sin and Satan. He has a legal right to home in heaven. He has a legal right to use the name of Jesus in prayer. He has a legal right to his Father's protection and care. He has a legal right to a place in the family of God. He has a legal right to the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. He has a legal right to be raptured when Jesus comes for his church. He has a legal right to immortality for the body. And he has a legal right to live with the Heavenly Father throughout eternity. Hallelujah. Glory to God. What is our role in this covenant relationship? Let's look at 1 Corinthians 6, 19-20. Paul wrote this. He said, Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? For you were bought at a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. In our blood covenant partnership with God, everything of His belongs to us. And we get excited about that. We jump up and we shout and we rejoice. And it's good to do that. But remember, there's two sides to this. Everything of ours belongs to Him. And this means our very lives belong to Him. 
And so I want to close with the words of Mary as she spoke to the servants at the wedding feast in Cana. Whatever he says to you, do it. Amen. Father, we thank you for unveiling the mystery of your plan of redemption to us. We see more clearly now the great lengths you went to in order to deliver us from the kingdom of darkness. We boldly proclaim today that we are redeemed by the precious blood of Jesus. And we stand in covenant with you because of that blood. And we declare that as your covenant partners, all that we have, all that we are, spirit, soul, and body, belongs to you. Use it all for your glory. Satan, we remind you, you have no place in us. Sickness and disease... You have no legal right to attack our bodies. We tell you to leave in the name of Jesus. Poverty and lack, you are not a part of our covenant with the Father. Therefore, we say, Satan, take your hands off of our personal finances, the finances of our church, and the finances for this upcoming meeting. We rest now in the care and provision of our Heavenly Father. Lord, we rejoice in you. And thank you in Jesus' name. And everybody said, Amen. Amen.